The Apostle Paul is writing this letter that we have been studying during the first century. And he is writing to Christians who are part of the local church in Corinth. They were relatively new Christians. They had been recently converted just in the past few years. Their love for God is genuine. Their love for God is sincere. But at least some of them are struggling to figure out just how to honor and glorify God in the specific time and place where God has them. That's true for every Christian. Every Christian, depending on when they're born and where they're born, is going to have different challenges as they look to discern how to honor God and how to glorify God. The Corinthians weren't any different. They didn't have it as well as some of you have had it. They didn't grow up in Christian homes, not one of them. They didn't have 2,000 years of Bible teachers like we do. In fact, they didn't even have the entire Bible. Remember, much of the New Testament was still being written. But they had these letters from Paul. They had these letters, 1 Corinthians we have, 2 Corinthians we have. They had words from an apostle of Jesus Christ. Words to confront them. Words to challenge them, to correct them, to encourage them. Words to patiently answer their questions, to help them work out their salvation in their time and place. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians marks the beginning of Paul's response to specific questions that the Corinthians had. Some were wondering, if I really love Jesus, should I stay single and not get married? Some were wondering, if I really love Jesus and I'm married, should I not be distracted with sexual relations with my spouse? Some were wondering, if I really love Jesus, and my husband or wife is not a believer, should I be willing to divorce my non-believing spouse if I really love Jesus? So they were struggling to work out how to honor God, how to devote themselves best to Jesus. So Paul's response to those questions has been, no, no. If you'd like to stay single, stay single. If you'd like to get married, get married. If you are married, you should have regular and ongoing sexual relations with your spouse. If you're married to an unbeliever, you should not divorce them. Listen, Paul has been saying, be content. Isn't that what he's been saying? Be content. God has you right where he wants you. Instead of looking to change your circumstance, look to glorify God in your circumstance. Or another way that we could put this 
instead of looking to change everything out here, look to change what's in here. Instead of being consumed by and occupied with and looking and fretting over changing everything out here, give attention to and look to change what's in here. Now in today's text, we find a guiding principle that is at the core of Paul's teaching here, and in fact, it is at the core of much of the Christian life. This guiding principle, God willing, we'll see, is a key to unlocking contentment in the Christian life. Now, as usual, I will need help as I preach this morning, and you and I will need help as we listen this morning, help to understand God's Word, help to apply God's Word. John Stott, the great Bible commentator, is known for saying that the preacher, he opens what appears to be closed, makes plain what is obscure, unravels what is knotted, and unfolds what is tightly packed. So if the Holy Spirit would help me to do that this morning, then with our minds and hearts, we will see God today. So please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for revealing yourself and your will to us through your word. Help us now to understand. Help me to open what appears to be closed, to make plain what is obscure, to unravel what is knotted and unfold what is tightly packed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 898. Let's begin with verse 17. In verse 17, Paul is going to state his guiding principle. This is that guiding principle that is the core of what he's been saying in this chapter and what he will say in this chapter. It is also at the core of much of the Christian life. So this is a very important guiding principle. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So this isn't just for the Corinthians. This is for us. This is for, what does Paul say? All the churches. Paul calls it a, a general rule for Christians. We're calling it a guiding principle. And here it is again. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. If you look down at the middle of the paragraph in verse 20, and then at the end of the paragraph in verse 24, Paul restates this principle. So clearly, this principle is the main point of this text. 
verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then here's how he puts it in verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Three verses. Three times the same principle restated. Lead the life assigned to you. Remain in the condition. Remain with God. Stay put. Paul is saying. Stay put. Remain where you are. Paul is saying. Don't look to get out of where you are. Don't look to get out of your relationships. Don't look to get out of your marriage. Don't look to get out of your job. Don't look to get out of your job. The grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. Or if the grass is greener, it's because there's more manure over there. Stay put, Paul is saying. Lead the life God has assigned to you. Be content. Quiet the restlessness in your heart. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. And 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ then I am content with Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. This word content literally means self-sufficient. It means independent. Biblically speaking, someone who is content is someone who has an abiding peace and happiness no matter what the circumstance. To be content is to have an abiding peace and happiness that is not dependent on people that is not dependent on circumstances. And so Paul's principle for Christians is stay put. Remain where you are. Live out the assignment that God has given you. Be content, which is a very hard exhortation for most of us. If not now, at some point or another in your life, in my life, this is difficult. This is easier said than done, Paul. We can very easily find ourselves discontent. Discontent with our lives. With where we are. With what we're doing. With who we know with what we've accomplished, with how we've succeeded, we very easily grow discontent. It's why when Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book on contentment in the 17th century, he called his book the rare jewel of Christian contentment. It's precious. It's a jewel to be had, but it's rare. My life's not what I want. My job's not what I want. My school's not what I want. My bank account's not what I want. My church is not what I want. My 
Children are not enough. My spouse is not enough. My life really isn't as awesome as I pretend it is on Facebook. I want the newer phone. I want the newer car. I want the new clothes. I want the new home. I'm discontent. Now sometimes, and here's what was going on in Corinth. Sometimes this discontentment for Christians is even born out of pure motives. So let me say that again so that we're all tuned in. Sometimes this discontentment, there's like a Christian version of it. Sometimes this discontentment is actually born out of or starts with really good motives or pure motives. A desire to do more for God. A desire to serve God more fully. A desire to be a bold Christian. A desire to make the most of my life. A a desire to not waste my life. Those are very good motives. Those are pure motives. But those motives turn ugly if I begin to see the people in my life and the assignments God has given me as obstacles. So I want to do more for God. I want to be great for God. I want to accomplish things for God. I don't want to waste my life. I want to be bold. I want to serve God as fully as I can. Those are good motives. But those motives become ugly if I begin to see people in my life as obstacles. If I begin to see the assignments that God has given me today as obstacles, that's ugly. That was the problem in Corinth. They were restless. He's holding me back. She's holding me back. This marriage is holding me back. This relationship is holding me back. This job is holding me back. My vocation is holding me back. My occupation is holding me back. The responsibilities that I have are holding me back. And there can be, there was for them a tendency to throw these things off. To leave their assignments To disregard their assignments for, in their minds, spiritually, bigger and better things. And remember, Paul is writing to them and saying, stay put. Stay put. Remain where you are. Remain in the condition where you are. And so to that attitude, Paul is writing. So let me give you the guiding principle. Let me spell it out. Here is Paul's principle. Write this down if you're taking notes. Let me elaborate on stay put, which is what Paul is saying. But here, more specifically, don't focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. There are exceptions, of course. But that is the general rule. Do not focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. Rather, focus on accepting your circumstances and glorifying God in them. The relationships, the job, the work, the team, the church, the family. Stay put. Paul is writing. He says, let each person, 
lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So that's the guiding principle. And it's a very important principle as we navigate the Christian life. Stay put is the guiding principle, the general rule. Do not focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. There are exceptions, of course. But do not focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. Rather, focus on accepting your circumstances and glorifying God in them. Now, there's one more thing for us to see before we move on to verse 18. There is a word that Paul uses eight times in this passage, which should sound bells off. It means that this word is very important and it's critical to understand what it means if we're going to understand this passage. So look with me at verses 17 through 24. I bet many of you already saw this word. It popped out at you. The word is call or called. And that word can be understood at least a couple different ways. So here's the first way. The first way, when you see the word call or called or calling in the Bible, it refers to your primary calling. Primary calling. This is God's special, saving, irrevocable calling of a Christian. This calling happens one time. It is God powerfully calling you to salvation. It is God powerfully calling you to Christ and to His people in light of the gospel. When God called you this way or when God calls you this way, you do not resist, but you respond in faith and repentance. This is like the calling of Jesus to the disciples. You remember he went and he walked and he would see Peter or Andrew or James or John. And it said he would call out to them and they would drop what they were doing and they would follow him. They didn't think about it. They didn't ask him a bunch of questions. When Jesus speaks in this way, you respond. And spiritually today, when the Holy Spirit calls you in this way, we do not resist. We respond in faith and repentance. So if you're here and you're a Christian today, you have been called by God in this way. Every Christian has been called by God in this way. And predominantly, when the Bible uses this word called, this is what it's talking about. This is your calling. So we saw it earlier in this letter, 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or in Romans 8.30. And those whom He predestined, what also did He do? He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome, Paul writes that letter, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Christian, this is your calling. 
That's a question Christians ask all the time. What is my calling? What is God calling me to do? If you are going to use that word, you better use it in the primary way the Bible uses it. And it is this way, like Romans 1.7. Your calling is the same as my calling. Your calling is not unique. It is not distinct. It is not different than my calling or any other Christian's calling. We all have been called by God in the same way to the same thing. And you have been called to be a saint. A saint, Romans 1, 7. You have been called, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ. You have been saved. You have been rescued. You have been redeemed. You have been adopted into the family of God. He is your heavenly Father. You are His Son. You are His daughter. And you live now to please your Father. And you are called a saint. So that is your calling. So that is primary calling. There is another way this word is used. It's way secondary. But it is your secondary calling. You have been called to Christ. What else have you been called to? You are in Christ this morning, but what else are you personally in? What relationships are you in? Secondary calling. Here's where there are distinctions and differences, right? You are in Christ, but what relationships are you in? What job are you in? What season of life are you in? What circumstances are you in? Our secondary calling refers to anything and everything else you've been called to. The relationships you've been called to. Some of you are husbands. Some of you are wives. Mother. Father. A brother. A sister. A friend. You have jobs you've been called to. You're a police officer or a carpenter or a contractor, salesman, or a teacher, a doctor, or something else. This is the service that you have been called to, the station in life that you've been called to, your vocation, your occupation, your circumstances. These are your secondary callings. God is directing your life. And in this way, He's directing your life differently than He's directing my life, isn't He? You have a plan and I have a plan, but Proverbs 16, 9, the Lord is establishing our steps. God has a plan and your life is the unfolding of his plan. Everything that happens in your life is a part of God's plan, you understand. Nothing that happens in your life surprises God. Nothing that you ever do surprises God. God never has to erase the whiteboard of your life and write up a new plan. He has a decree. He has a plan. And we would say providence is your life circumstances. It's the unfolding of that plan. And you learn what God's plan is every moment of every day. Oh, here's what's next. And here's what's next. And tomorrow, that's what's next. And next week. This is the unfolding of God's plan. It is your lot in life. And these are all your secondary callings. So, 
Eight times the word call or called is used in our text. And seven of them, every one of them except verse 17, refers to our primary calling. God has called you to be a Christian. And then secondarily, called has, God has called you to be, and you fill in the blank. Now, it's interesting, and I alluded to this before. Usually, when we use the word calling, we're referring to our vocation or our occupation. Usually, that's what Christians mean, but that's not the case in the Bible. Again, overwhelmingly, when the Bible uses the word calling, it refers to your being called to Christ. In other words, and this will become clear and more important as we read on. Listen, your primary calling is more important than your secondary calling. In fact, and we'll see, your primary calling is so important it's almost like, comparatively, your secondary callings don't even matter. They're insignificant compared to your primary calling. Now let me ask you, which one do you spend more time thinking about? Which one do you look for more joy in? In which one is more contentment and satisfaction in your life? In which do you tend to find your identity? Is it in your primary calling or your secondary calling? Paul makes very clear which is more important. Okay, let's keep reading. So keep that in our mind. We've got the guiding principle and we understand this word call. Pay attention to how Paul uses that word. Let's begin back with verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Next, Paul moves right into two illustrations. And that is the rest of our passage. There's two case studies, two examples he gives the Corinthians of how this principle should be applied. And the two examples are circumcision and slavery, neither of which we'd have to admit remain as relevant in our culture. Very important then, very relevant then. I'll do my best to explain and make them relatable. So two case studies. The first is circumcision. Listen to verses 18 through 20. Was anyone at the time of his call, that is primary calling, when you were called to Christ, when you became a Christian, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision for 
neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, we don't feel it, but the Corinthians, many of them would have been very offended by what Paul just said. When he says to those who were circumcised, those Jews who were circumcised, your circumcision doesn't matter. That would have been extremely offensive. When Paul is writing this, circumcision was an outward symbol that reflected either that you were a Jew or a Gentile. And so in this church, apparently, you had... Jews who were becoming Christians and you had uncircumcised Gentiles who were becoming Christians. There were some Jews who were pressuring new Gentile Christians to become circumcised. And there were some Gentiles who were pressuring new Jewish Christians to remove the marks of their circumcision for which there was an actual surgical procedure. Here's what Paul says. Jews do not need to conform to Gentiles, and even more offensively at the time, and Gentiles do not need to become or conform to Jews. Here's the point of what Paul says here. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Stay put. Did you hear Paul's guiding principle at work in what he just told the Corinthians? Let's read those verses again. Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. In other words, don't focus on changing your circumstances. Don't focus on controlling your circumstances. This is principle. Why not? Verses 19 through 24, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. So what should they focus on? What should they do? What is more important? But circumcision doesn't matter, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what matters. Obedience to God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This is his principle at work. Do not focus on changing your circumstances. Do not worry about controlling your circumstances. Rather, accept your circumstances, stay put wherever you are, and glorify God, obey the commandments of God in whatever your circumstances. The second illustration is in verses 21 through 24. He begins, were you a bond servant or were you a slave when called again primary calling when you were called to christ were you a slave and then what does he say next do not be concerned about it do not be concerned about it it's the guiding principle again don't focus on changing your circumstance he's saying that to those who were slaves. 
Don't worry about changing or controlling your circumstance. Rather, focus on accepting it and glorifying God in your circumstance. And that would have been one of the most difficult circumstances. Now, to be clear, servitude in the first century, though often immoral, was very different from the slavery known in this country's early history. In fact, many of those who were enslaved at this time may have been serving punishment for crimes, or some of these bond servants even voluntarily submitted themselves to enslavement to pay off some sort of a debt. Which is why Paul puts in parenthesis verse 21, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. But he still says to those who are at the time enslaved, and then they became a Christian, they came to Christ, Paul tells them, stay put, do not be concerned about it. What a thing to say. He goes on in verse 22. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. So he addresses that despairing slave who thinks, I want to be free. And Paul says, you are free. You are free. In the most important, fundamental, foundational way. As a Christian, you are free. And then he also has a word for the free man who's proud. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant or slave of Christ. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. In other words, you've been saved. You've been set free spiritually. And therefore, and this is metaphoric, do not become bond servants of men. Who cares what people say or think? Do not be enslaved to men. So, verse 24, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Okay, so that is an overview of what Paul says in these verses. Paul gives a guiding principle that is at the core of his teaching here and it is at the core of much of the Christian life. And that guiding principle, again, is stay put. Don't focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. Rather, focus on accepting and glorifying God in your circumstance. And then Paul gives a couple examples of how this principle applies and we would have our own examples if we thought long enough. But notice, as usual, Paul does not just give the principle. Embedded in this teaching is help to actually follow it. This is constantly what God's Word does. God's Word does not just say, though it does say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. This pleases God. This doesn't please God. Because as a Christian, we hear that and I want to do what pleases God. And as a Christian, I don't want to do what doesn't please God. 
But often then, when I know what pleases God and I know what doesn't please God, I find it very difficult to do what pleases Him. And I find it very difficult to not do what does not please Him. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. But that is a struggle in the Christian life. And so I, for one, am thankful that God's Word doesn't just say, hey, do this and don't do this. It always comes with the help that we need to actually obey, to actually follow God. Because that's the question we're left with. How do we actually do this? I mean, do any of you hear that guiding principle and feel confident with following it? Hey, stop focusing on changing or controlling your circumstances. Do you, when you hear that, do you think, oh, I never thought of that before. I, I will stop to, right now. I'm not going to look to change my circumstances. I'm not going to look to control my circumstances. Not a problem. I don't have a problem with control. I don't need to control my spouse. I don't need to control my kids. I don't need to control my friends. I don't need to control circumstances. I'm, I'm totally fine with accepting that I really have no control over anything. That's fine with me. And what am I to do? Accept the circumstances in my life and glorify God in them. How do I glorify? By obeying His commandments. Done. Not a problem. The end of the sermon. No, no Christian hears that principle and is confident to obey it. We're all asking the question, how do we actually do this? Easier said than done. So there are three things I'd like to point out. Three things in this text. Remembering these three truths, remembering these three things will help us to stay put in the assignments God has given us contentedly, with joy, with peace. Let me list them and then we'll go through each of them. Number one, remember his purchase. Number two, remember his providence. Number three, Remember His presence. Number one, remember His purchase. The word His in each of those in my notes is capitalized. So you know who I'm talking about. Remember His purchase. Remember who Jesus purchased. Remember, Christian, who you belong to. That's the first thing. Remember who you belong to. Verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do not be enslaved to men. Do not be enslaved to what people want of you, to what people think of you. You are enslaved to Jesus. You belong to Him. You belong to Jesus, Christian, because you were bought. You were bought with a price. And the price that was paid was His very death on the cross. Who do you belong to? 
who bought you. This is remembering your primary calling. This is remembering that irrevocable calling, that direct calling when God called you out of darkness and into light. We must not confuse our primary calling with our secondary callings. We must not substitute one calling for another. We must not find our identity in our secondary callings, but we must find our identity in our primary callings. Who am I? At the end of the day, I am a Christian. At the end of the day, I belong to Jesus. That's not the only thing about me. That's not even the only important thing about me, but it is so important that it makes everything else almost not important. That's how Paul could write and say something that was so important to them. Like circumcision, it doesn't matter. It's why Paul could write to those who were slaves, maybe even some being mistreated, and he could say, don't worry about it. Don't be concerned about it. Focus on your primary calling. You are a saint. You belong to Jesus, Christian, right now. There is nothing else more important about you. You may be a husband. You may be a father. You may be a mother. You may be a wife. You may be a friend. You may be a church member. You may be a neighbor. You may be a sister. You may be a brother. You may be successful. You may be many important things. But nothing is more important than this fact. You belong to Jesus. That is your primary calling. It is what is most important about you. When we find our joy, our satisfaction, our identity in anything else, we inevitably grow discontent. Always. Only a matter of time. Your outward appearance is not what's most important. Your job is not what's most important. Your bank account, none of that matters. What matters is that you were bought with a price. Let me quote to you from David Strain. In a sermon he preached on this text, he, he wrote these words. Our dissatisfaction, our discontentment with our lives very often results when we confuse the two. And he's talking about these two callings. When we root our identity in the vocational call of God that is focused, if you like, horizontally on the web of human relationships and earthly responsibilities that he has given to us. When we look there for our identity, we are placing a burden on our jobs and our marriages and our daily duties they were never meant to bear. When you look for your identity and your worth and your daily vocation, you will never, you will never be satisfied. But when you begin to understand, if you're a Christian, that your identity now is rooted, in fact, in the saving, transforming call of redeeming grace in the gospel, well, then you'll begin to see that success or failure at work, frustrations and inadequacies as a parent, doing well in school, keeping up with the brightest kid in the class, you'll begin to see that those things simply can't touch who you are. 
Your identity is not derived from your performance in your earthly vocation. Rather, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your security is elsewhere. Your identity is elsewhere in him, in the vertical call of God through the gospel by which he has made you new. End quote. So number one, remember his purchase. Remember who you belong to. This will help you to accept the circumstances, to accept your lot in life, to accept your relationships, to accept your job, to accept those secondary callings. When you remember your primary calling, that you were purchased by Jesus Christ and called into relationship with him. Number two, remember his providence. Or remember his plan. Or remember who's in charge. Your primary calling is most important. And by the way, all those secondary callings, they're from God. John Calvin wrote, Each individual has his own living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not heedlessly wander throughout life. God has given you an assignment. Look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So what life am I supposed to lead? I'm supposed to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to me. I'm to lead the life that God has assigned to me. The most important thing that I need to think about is my primary calling that I am called to be a saint. Now in regards to these other things that I am called to do, I must remember that these are assignments from God and I must glorify Him in them. Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to you. Do you think of your life that way? Do you remember His providence? Do you remember His plan? When you are unhappy with your life, remember who that unhappiness is directed toward. When you are bitter or angry or resentful over the circumstances in your life, remember who has established your steps. Remember his providence. Remember his plan. When you don't like your assignment and you're jealous of someone else's assignment or you're envious of someone else's assignment or you wish that you had someone else's assignment, remember who gave you your assignment and who gave them their assignment and which life you're supposed to lead. It's my assignment. And your assignment is unlike anyone else's. Your circumstances are completely unique to you. No one else has those same people 
in their life. No one else has those same words spoken to them. No one else has those same circumstances. No one else has those same red lights. No one else has that same job. No one else has those same interactions. Everything, every second of every day, designed and tailored by God for you, for your good. So remember his providence. Remember his plan. If you don't accept it and make the most of it, John Calvin says, you will wander heedlessly throughout life. And we see people do this. Your assignment is like a sentry post. It's your, this is where God has put you. If you ignore that or are bitter about that or wish for something else, you will just flat out miss the assignment God has given you. And so according to Ligon Duncan, he says the secret of contentment is God's providence apprehended by your soul. Everything that comes your way, everything that threatens your joy, everything that threatens your contentment, have you grasped that every one of those things is from the hand of God and they are for your good? If you grasp that, everything that happens to you and around you is in accordance with God's providence, which is the unfolding of his will and plan. So again, number two, remember his providence, remember his plan, and you will be helped not to focus on changing or controlling your circumstances, but on accepting and glorifying God in them. Finally, in conclusion, number three, remember his presence. Or remember who is with you. As you and I struggle with discontentment, as we struggle to wish we had a different assignment, as we struggle to accept our circumstances that we have no control over, as we struggle to glorify God in them, remember not only who you belong to, remember not only who's in charge, but remember who is right now who is with you. Who is with you. He has set you out on this task and He has set you out on this mission. And He has given you everything that you need. And He's given you all the truth that you need and all the support that you need and all the doctrine you need and the theology you need and all the things that you need to remember. He has given you all of that and He has sent you out. But then He has also grabbed your hand and walks along with you. At the end of the Gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, He gave His disciples like this impossible mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them all that I have commanded. That's, that's a task. That's a mission. You can imagine how they felt. That's a daunting thing to be called to. What we're all called to as Christians. Jesus knew what they needed to hear. He had taught them up until that point. He had equipped them up until that point. He'd given them everything they need. 
died for them, resurrected for them, is going to ascend and be with the Father for them, going to stand at the right hand of the Father as long as they're alive, praying night and day, constantly over and over again, interceding for you, interceding for me, sending His Holy Spirit. But then Jesus told His disciples, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Look at verse 24. There's something a little different in this third repetition or restatement of the principle. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. God is with you. His help is with you. His support is with you. His strength is with you. Is Christ with you this morning? Right now. The reality is that Christ is with some of you and Christ is not with some of you today. Some of you are leading this life apart from Jesus. And you know it. Some of you are leading this life apart from Jesus and you don't know it. Deceiving yourself. Pretending to know Jesus, pretending to love Jesus, but then over and over and over again, without sorrow, doing what you want to do. Making your name great, not God's name. With your words, you say you're a Christian. With your words, you say you love Jesus. But not a single person would pick you out of the crowd and call you a Christian. There's no fruit. Maybe in front of some people that you want to impress. Maybe in front of some people that you really want to think you're a Christian. But at the end of the day, you know. You know there's no love for God in your heart. You know there's no affection for God in your heart. You know you don't really believe the gospel. You know it hasn't really made a difference in your life. And you're not with Christ this morning. And so there is no way for you to be content. There's no way for you to have real joy. You'll find it temporarily when things go your way, but things are not always going to go your way. They certainly aren't going to go your way eternally. The best thing that could happen is that you could now know that there is only joy, there is only contentment, there is only satisfaction, there is only life in Jesus. And you should turn to Him in faith and repentance. You should believe this gospel. You should turn from your sin. You should confess what you've done and who you are. And you should follow Christ. And some of you this morning, Christ is with you. And you struggle with still being content. You struggle with envying or being jealous of someone else's assignment. Your days are difficult sometimes. Maybe you have more difficult days than not. Maybe this is more of a struggle for you than you let on. But you can be reminded this morning that you have been purchased by Jesus Christ. That what He did on the cross, He did for you. You, personally. You could be reminded that everything that comes your way, even the things that you hate, 
even the things that upset you, even the things that you see as interruptions, even the things that you see as holding you back. Just like when you were a kid with your parents. God is doing something very good that you cannot see right now. You cannot understand right now. What do you need to do? Well, you need faith. You need to trust Him. He knows what is best. He knows what you need. He knows what is going to result in Him getting more glory and you getting more joy. And it may, like, may not seem like what's going on right now is headed in that direction, but by faith you believe His Word. You're reminded of His providence, that He is in charge that he is on the throne, that he is in control. And so you can accept anything and everything that comes your way and set your mind to glorify him. And, Christian, you can be reminded today of his presence, that he's with you right now. If you call out to him, he hears you. If you call out to him, he listens. If you're hurting or brokenhearted or discouraged, he is drawing near to you. He is answering your prayers, yes and yes and yes and amen and amen and amen, saying yes to every single prayer you pray because every single prayer you pray has in it, God, do what's best. Your will be done. For your glory and my good. And he's saying, you got it. You got it. Yes, yes, yes. Amen, amen, amen. So to restate. Paul's principle here. Christians stay put. Do not focus on changing or controlling your circumstances. Rather, focus on accepting. And glorifying God in your circumstances, by remembering who you belong to, by remembering who is in charge, by remembering who is with you. And now every Sunday we look to honor God by obeying Him through the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 and following. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. This is Paul's warning. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Lord's Supper looked more like a meal in the first century and at this time. And they weren't eating together. They weren't sharing together. It was just this individual thing gone bad. Paul confronts them and writes to them. 
says, this isn't right. This isn't what God has commanded you to do. He corrects them and says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we collectively, as a church, remember and proclaim the Lord's death today. So the way we do that at Veritas is, in a moment, I'll pray, and then we'll have leaders up front. And you can empty into the center aisle and come forward and take the bread and the juice and then return to your seat and wait. And wait, and we take it together because we know as Christians we have been united to Christ and we've been united to one another. And it's a family meal. Now, who is this for today? Some of you may be visiting, or some of you may not know. This supper is for those of you who are Christians. If you are a believer, if you have heard this gospel and believe this gospel, you have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ. And you are living to know God, to love God, to trust Him, to obey Him, to proclaim Him, to enjoy Him. If you are a Christian today, if you have been baptized, if you have received the first ordinance, the first sacrament, and you've been baptized as a portrayal of what God has done in your heart, you're invited. If you're also a part of this church or another local church that preaches the same gospel that you have heard here today, if you're not just a self-proclaiming Christian, but there are others, a church that knows you, that knows you, that holds you accountable, that confirms and affirms that you are in Christ. Because the worst thing we could do would be if you are not a Christian, to affirm your salvation by serving you the Lord's Supper today. So again, if you are here and you're a baptized believer and you are part of this or another local church, then you're invited. If not, first, come to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. We hope and pray that you would be glorified, that you would be honored, that you would be filled with joy as we remember and proclaim the death of your Son now. And thank you for the redemption that you have brought. Thank you for saving us from our sin and reconciling us to yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for purchasing us through your death on the cross. Help us now and in the days to come to live a life that is worthy of our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.